I met my partner. He, we never married. He was very charismatic and he, he told me everything I had been longing for that Prince Charming to say to me. He had told me how beautiful I was and how any man who would let me go would, would just be crazy. And, and it was music to my ears. I just thought he's wonderful and he was funny and he was just really just had this fantastic personality and just oozed charisma. I could see alarm bells and, and warning signs already right at the get go with that relationship. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. Here we are in December. I can't believe it. The lead up to Christmas, you know, it can be such a joyful time for so many of us, but for so many, it's the most difficult time of the year. This episode has been scheduled here at the start of December because many, many women who are in abusive relationships find this time leading up to Christmas more volatile and difficult than any other. Triggers heighten violence at Christmas time. Tensions are high as household budgets are stretched. Separated families come together. Men who are abusive are spending more time at home and the alcohol is flowing, a recipe for when it can all go wrong. This week, I'm chatting with Sandy J. Sandy is a mindset coach, and she loves to help women get their lives back on track using her own experiences of a life gone off the rails. Sandy's story is about a family where kids are on the run from their own father. It's a story that's steeped in isolation and despair at times. So please join me in hearing Sandy's story. Hi, Sandy. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to be on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself as a small child, because I know that you were born with some quite unique health issues, weren't you? Yes. Of course, when you come into the world, you don't know that you're, you're any different to anybody else. And I don't think I really had an awareness of myself being any different until I was primary school aged. I 
came into the world with a syndrome called clipophile syndrome and also a thing called sprangle shoulder. So these things were muscular, skeletal. And Dawn, you're sitting and looking at me right now. And to look at me, you know, you wouldn't know that there was any of these sort of oddities going on in the way that I was formed. But I definitely feel it as I sit here and I talk to you. I'm, I'm very conscious of my, my anomalies. I prefer to call them anomalies rather than calling them abnormalities because I think that there's this association with that or deformity. If you, you know, if you were to say it's a deformity, there's this connotation that goes with the word deformity of one of being ugly and not quite right you know and i don't think that i'm really any different in wanting to just feel normal and feel beautiful and and i wasn't really i did feel very beautiful and completely whole as a little girl before school age i did have an operation where they it was to try and correct just the way that I looked to the eye. So they removed part of my scapula on my left shoulder. And I didn't, I wasn't even aware that there was any big deal with it then because I was still too little. And I just remember being in hospital at that time and just being full of life and full of love and full of joy. And it didn't bother me at all. I was a very happy, happy little girl. And it wasn't until I went to a primary school that I noticed I, I didn't get a lot of flack. There wasn't a lot of bullying where you, because I, it wasn't like hugely apparent. I think that was in my favor because I think kids can, kids say what they see. They, they you don't hold back and think about how that is going to impact on another person. They just state their observations and they think about, they might think about it later and think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that because that really hurt that person. But there's not usually, there are bullies, but sometimes there's not no malice intended. I mean, we're both mothers and we've seen with our own children that in their especially those early years when kids are sort of in that toddler age, they've got absolutely no concept of social etiquette. And so if they see somebody that looks different to them, they'll say what they see. And they don't say that to be cruel at, at all. It's just what they see in front of them. So they're really, you know, looking at the the facade of the person and they're speaking about it to that person that can that can be hurtful and that can make them feel less than and I think that is really what began to stick to me and my psyche is that somehow I was less than I was less lovable less attractive less likable because of my physical differences, because in inverted commas, I wasn't normal. And so that set me apart, that difference set me apart from 
other people. Now, what I saw is I saw around me, I saw that everybody else more or less was normal and I was the odd person out. But as I know now with time, and growing up, there are many people who have many anomalies going on that aren't apparent. And these differences are very common and they don't make us less than. But I can say that I was very affected through my primary school years. And I did, I was always very social. And I think what happened is because I felt less than, I started to become a little bit of an extrovert. So I overcompensated for those things that were making me feel less than to make me feel okay and as likable and lovable as everybody else. And so I really... I strived really hard in primary school with my learning you know I was always ready to put my hand up and answer a question in class and I I had good friends I was very fortunate I think because people anybody who meets me the, the person that they see in their first impression is somebody who's very comfortable in their own skin and somebody who's very confident and they don't know what is going on under the surface and they don't know all the insecurities that I'm battling to be that confident person. And it's for me, it's, it's been a defense for me. It's, you know, it's me putting my armor on and so that the things that might hurt me, I'm hoping that by putting on this brave face and this facade that those things won't hit hard and hurt me deeply. But of course, I'm just as as human <laughs> as everybody else. So yeah. when when hurtful things happen, they do hurt. And I think over the years, I think these sorts of things form the lens that we look through to see the world that we live in. And that made me a very deep thinker from the time that I was a child. I didn't look at things really just in this sort of happy-go-lucky, take everything for granted that everything was okay. And it wasn't because I didn't have a stable secure upbringing. I really did. I was very fortunate that I had stability within my family. I knew that my parents loved me. I knew that they would take care of me. There was no no issue with neglect, but I think there was another layer where I wanted to be helped they couldn't see what was going on inside of me, the, you know, the inner sort of psychological turmoil that I was going through as a child with feeling really different to everybody else and feeling less than everybody else. And from what they saw, and this is no, no criticism of them because they, did, they saw what they saw. And to, to them, I came across as being a well-adjusted, happy yeah. child. There weren't any strong indicators to them to say, 
that things weren't right. And it probably wasn't until my teenage years that that started to become more apparent and that just became apparent. And from where, from where they sat, it was just me being a normal kind of rebellious teenager. So yeah. I got brought up in this Christian household, which made me a person of faith. I've always had a very strong spiritual side to me. I diverged away from church in my adulthood and I just continue on a path with my faith and my knowing that I'm a spiritual being, but I'm not within the confines of a, a church or a religion my mum's a minister now. The role models within the family were very traditional. Dad was the breadwinner and mum was the homemaker. And he just always went out and did what he had to do to give the family that financial stability. So you always felt pretty supported by your parents. Yeah, I did. I yeah. did. I felt, yeah, I felt very much like I had very great relationship with my, my dad. I knew that he was backing me all the time. He believed in me. I, I felt that from him all the time. I felt that he had that confidence in me that I could achieve anything I set my mind to. My mum, she was probably very, she's very conservative. I love you, mum. <laughs> I just say I love my mother, but she's not a risk taker. That there's no criticism towards her for not being a risk taker because she has, I've got a great admiration for my mum because she actually put her own needs on hold until there was a window of opportunity for her to follow the path that she wanted to follow. She she had to sacrifice, she had to drop out of school when she was in year nine because there was dysfunction within her own family and there was a split between her parents and her mother, there was no welfare at the time and her mother had younger sibs and my grandmother had to go and work two jobs and my mum had to come out of school to look after her young sister and brother. So she actually had to finish her, she wanted to finish her schooling and to her credit, she finished it when my brother and I were quite young. So she got her year 12 qualification She's always been academic and had academic aspirations. And then she put all, everything else on hold during that time where she was bringing us up. And then it wasn't until later when my father passed away when he was 57 and my younger sister, who's 14 years younger, and she was only 12 at the time when my dad died. So she was still very young. But after dad died, mum decided to study and she went on to become a counsellor and then went on to become a minister. And I've got a lot of admiration for her because she didn't take risks, but she is proof that you can get to where you want to go and slow and steady does win the race. Whereas yeah. I'm this risk taker. <laughs> 
completely different. And so, you know, poor mum, she's had her challenges with me because, you know, her heart's in her mouth every time I, you know, say I'm, I'm doing this or doing that. And she's scared for me. And so she, dad was always do whatever you want. I believe in you, whatever you think you can do, you can do. And mum was there on the other hand, putting a brick on my head and just saying, now don't get too, don't get too big for your own boots. <laughs> so when you're at home and you've got parents and it's all fairly supportive but you're at school and you've got this personality. You're saying that inside your own head, you've got a lot of other thoughts going on. What sort of things were going around in your head as a, a little kid? I think at that time, I was already thinking for the longer term and thinking down the track and being that little girl who wants to be a princess and is already dreaming about meeting her Prince Charming and falling in love and having a happily ever after and thinking what are my chances of that happening because really there's something wrong with me who's going to love me who's going to want to be with me and who's going to love me when these things in my eyes made me ugly to somebody else so I think what was going on for me was those insecurities and those fears for my future and those fears really did when i reflect on it now they really did lead me on a path and i think you know fear is something that everybody experiences and i can say that right from the time i was a little girl i needed to find courage i needed to find courage to have that courage and do those things again it's about putting on the armor that was my my defense to basically try and protect myself from being hurt so then when you're a teenager do you think that that all of those thoughts that have been building up over the years sort of sent you down a bit of a, a reckless path for a while there was a, a few reasons i think there's a natural sort of there's a time in your teenage years where you start detaching from your parents and making a definite, like either your parents are giving you the freedom and now in hindsight, you get gain this wonderful wisdom when you're a parent yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with my kids, I say to my kids, with freedom comes responsibility. So if I can see that you're at that level where you're responsible enough, I'm going to give you all the freedom in the world. I don't want to be a helicopter mum. I really don't want to. I've got better things to do with my time than hover over you <laughs> and watch everything that you're doing. But that comes with trust. I need to trust that you have your head screwed on right. I need to trust that you have a good self-esteem. I need to trust that you're a responsible human being, okay? When all of those things are there, then here it is. I'll give it to you on a silver platter. Freedom, 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 go for it. But when you're making dumb choices, when you're getting into trouble, when you're not keeping up with your schoolwork, when you, your grades are suffering, you're missing school, whatever it is, if those sorts of things are creeping in or you're not being defiant about just contributing in the household, then guess what? 
I take that freedom back. That's just the way it is. There, there are scales and these are the scales and we have to look at these scales and see where things are at. So I had this conservative upbringing with the Christian household, with these beliefs that we were, I've got a brother as well, he's 14 months older than me, that we were brought up, we were raised to believe that you shouldn't have sex until you are married. And raging hormones in teenagers, just to me, it was just absolutely nonsensical. And that was my argument is you've got a bunch of raging hormones going on between all these teenagers and you're expecting teenagers not to act things out. That just doesn't make sense to me. These days, people don't often tie the knot until they're late into their 20s or even 30. And people now don't get married all the time either. So where does that fit with this whole belief that you have to wait to have sex <laughs> until <Right>. you're married? <laughs> it's a very strict belief, it, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It, it just it was it was way too rigid for my liking. And so yeah. so I just went against the grain with that and I was very respectful towards my parents. We were brought up that way and it wasn't in a way where there's like this fear that you're going to be punished if you don't respect. It was really nice. Like we just felt that it was something that our parents deserved, that they really deserved our respect. And so I sort of twisted things. And so I didn't tell my parents what I was doing. It just got hidden away from them because I didn't want to hurt them. But at the same time, I didn't want to obey them either when it yeah. came to that. And so I did everything but have intercourse basically until the time I, I was 19. And my brother and I dealt with it differently. He, he definitely just, he was more conservative and he just really had so much guilt over anything associated with it. So I was very sad that my parents had this very rigid belief that they were trying to instill in us about sex and and sexuality too and i i don't think i've held on to resentment or anything towards my parents for that i think because of my defiance and i just forged my own path irrespective and i can't say that i made great choices all the time either when i was doing those things but i was experimenting and having experiences and and growing up so learning about myself, learning about my sexuality, and it's just a shame that there wasn't this sort of open openness about it. There were definite can and can't do's. And that to me just took away what should be something that is very personal and intimate and you should be able to explore and learn about that side of yourself and be okay with it and not have any shame association with anything that you're doing so as long as it's consensual and you're at an age where it's appropriate knowing that this is going to air and that this will be public dawn is it's an interesting conversation to have when you're talking about yeah let's talk about sex you know? <laughs> <laughs>
but I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes when we're brought up in a home where things are super strict, it kind of almost sends some kids the opposite way because it's yeah. so overwhelming. I just feel like it it never works really because you're going to get screwed somehow. I think whether you yeah. rebel or whether you become terrified of sex or whatever it is, yeah. I think if you just work with your kids through it and know that you're chatting them through and giving them information and yeah. all of that stuff instead of just this is the rule it's yeah. just restrictive and it's interesting isn't it how it can it, really screw with people's minds <laughs> <laughs> it does and it's so true my relationship with my own kids with sex is that like I'll talk about anything with them that they are happy to talk about if they yeah. feel awkward, because that's okay. Like there's still, if they don't feel comfortable talking to me about something, if they, they're cringing and thinking, oh, I don't want to be talking to you about this, mum, then I'm fine with it. It's That's okay. As long as they know that the door's open for, for them to come and talk to me about anything and everything, if they want to, what I feel is important. I don't want there to be any stigma associated with sex or sexuality. And I know my kids and I'm, I know who they are and I love them for everything that they are. And they're having a completely different experience to my adolescent years. So yeah. very, very different to my adolescent years. But I feel like as a mum, I really feel that I just need to let my kids know that I'm there for them through thick and thin because plenty of challenges on the horizon for kids these days. Absolutely. And I love that because, you know, communication is the big thing. Like if you just say the door is open, you can talk to me about anything you probably don't want to talk to me about everything, but anything you want to talk to me about, I'm just going to hear you and I'm just going to let you feel your feelings and talk. And that's that's what we should be doing for our kids because the problem is when your parents are so different and they've got a very strong idea about what we should be doing in our lives, you're not going to go to speak to them. And then you're just going to try and make up your own rules and figure your own stuff out. And that's when yeah. things can go a bit crazy, right? So all of this leads you then to, as you're getting a little bit older, you then find yourself in a relationship with a man. And tell me a little bit about how that relationship started. I met my partner. He, we never married. He was very charismatic and he, he told me everything I had been longing for that Prince Charming to say to me. He had told me how beautiful I was and how any man who would let me go it would just be crazy and and it was music to my ears I just thought he's wonderful and he was funny and he was just really just had this fantastic personality and just oozed charisma and anyway I could see alarm bells and and warning signs already right at the get-go with that relationship and he was a, a voyeur and I didn't know to what extent I didn't know to what degree but there was already in indicators that that was happening and I didn't see any real danger in it 
at the time. So I was seeing somebody casually at the time when I met him and I, I got in contact with the guy that I had been seeing and I said, can we just get together and have a walk and a talk? And I let him know that I'd met somebody else. Well, as we were on this walk, I sensed that I was being watched or that we were being watched. And I looked down the street and no, no indicators, couldn't see anybody. But then later, after I had my talk with this person and just explained that I'd met somebody else and couldn't keep seeing him, then my now ex said to me, I said to him, I said, were you watching us when we were walking? And he's, he said, you are so smart. He, he's like, you know, he just thought I was so clever that I had picked up on that, that my sixth sense that my intuition had picked up that he was there so yeah he had been watching and so there were that was a lot of he he did that sort of thing a lot and he would jump the fence and he'd tell me later on then he'd been looking in the window and just yeah so creepy stuff that yeah. I didn't see I didn't see the danger in it at the times so it was very unstable right from the get-go but I persevered with that relationship we ended up having three children together when we had our first child. So there's nine years difference between my first child and from my first marriage and my first child in this relationship. And I'll just go back and say that when I met him, he was using drugs recreationally. So it was a weekend, jump into having some speed or something to have a good time. I didn't think that it went beyond that. When we had our first child, I discovered that he was using regularly. He'd formed an addiction. And then we were in this cycle where I was basically, once he knew that I knew he had a problem, he kept everything hidden from me. So anytime I would say, I think he'd been using, because he would just tell me he, you know, he hadn't, he wasn't and everything was perfect and life was normal and and I'd find evidence and I'd see indicators and some of the indicators would be things like his functioning cycle so he would go for days like a few days where he'd be basically up and unable to sleep and super bouncy and let's do this let's do that really up and on fire and I can do anything, Superman. And then he'd be crashing down and he'd literally be sleeping for days. And and to me, that was a very early indicator that there was a, a drug problem. And so we got through, we had two children together. So I had a daughter with him and then I had a son and another son. And in between the first son and the second son, there was just no hiding it. And it was affecting it was affecting his work. It was just putting a lot of stress on our relationship, a lot of dysfunction within the relationship. There was no, no stability. There was no normality for me. I was constantly worrying about money because money never seemed to be there. It was always disappearing. I had invested in my equity from the divorce into a, a house for us 
and he was the one who was out in the workforce earning to pay that mortgage. We only got through a certain amount of time before things became problematic with that because money wasn't there and um, it was putting real pressure on us in terms of being consistent with our mortgage payments. Then I discovered that he had an affair between the second child with him and the third, and I tried to end the relationship and he went into denial about that. And that was his go-to was deny, deny, deny. He just had this morbid fascination with the mafia, with all of his associations were just frightening, absolutely frightening to me. But I was caught in a cycle and I couldn't break free. And I loved him and I wanted him to be okay. And so I would keep rescuing him. And I did, it took me a long, long time to understand that what I was doing in helping to perpetuate the cycle of abuse was I was in actually enabling him. As long as I stayed there, I was like his, his go-to his safe person who would bail him out, who would be there to love him and look after him when he wasn't able to look after himself. Mm-hmm. And so I had another child that he was basically another, another child. Anyway, we, he begged and pleaded his way back in, into the relationship after I found out that he'd had an affair, denied having the affair. It wasn't the only time that that came up. There were many instances where where there were accusations and suspicions and but it was always deny 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 so his his drug of addiction was ice it wasn't readily available on the market or something and then he started using ice and it's a terribly addictive drug and I didn't understand until a long time after that it actually inhibits the natural production of dopamine in the brain so as soon as an ice user uses ice that means that they've impaired that function which is we need dopamine to experience joy we need dopamine to experience any happiness any real sense of happiness in our life and if that has been destroyed by a drug then it's no wonder that drug addicts with ice will continue to use because the only time they're ever going to feel good is when they're using it's devastating it is so devastating and so he had this cycle of sabotaging his own life with his addiction and he would sabotage my life and the kids life because of the addiction and so it's very very damaging and for me it felt like death by a thousand cuts it was just i i was just so worn out worn down there was so much psychological abuse there were things going on which i won't go into now with with other forms of abuse within the relationship but one of the things that doesn't get spoken about much at all which is a big part of abuse is that 99 percent of women who have been abused 
have been financially abused and that relationship cost me everything i lost everything we moved to the mornington peninsula he said i said right that's it we can't be together and i said i want to move and he's like oh, please give this a chance please give us a chance and so i said well maybe if we move away from here and you break ties with all those bad associations that you've got and we start fresh and so we found our dream house on the Mornington Peninsula, not our dream house, my dream house. It was absolutely gorgeous, had huge pool in the backyard. It was the type of home that the kids could grow up in and we could have just had a wonderful life in. It was everything that I dreamed a family home should be and we lost that within a year which meant I lost all my equity because I entrusted him to make the mortgage payments and the car payments which was really a huge error of judgment on my part I was very busy looking after three children under the age of five so I had my hands very full already just looking after the littlies and keeping everything going but I should have taken on that responsibility of making the mortgage payments because he just kept lying to me and telling me that he had made the mortgage payments and it wasn't an until the 11th hour that I found out that they were going to repossess the house. And by that time, I tried to move heaven and earth to try and salvage the situation. By that time, it was too late. And within three weeks, we were out. We were out. I had to find somewhere else for me and the kids to live. And that was the point where we separated. But from that point, it was just this consistent cycle of him wearing me down and trying to push his foot back in the door. And it was horrible. It went on for years. You've probably heard in a cycle of abuse that things don't get better usually, unless there's some sort of will on the part of the abuser for the abuser to change their behavior. The victim can never do anything to change that person. It's up to the abuser to do something and take it into their hands and work on those abusive behaviors and improve their behaviours, most of the time what happens is it escalates and it gets progressively worse. And when a woman leaves, on average it takes 12 attempts for a woman to leave an abusive relationship. And there are lots of reasons why that is the case. One of the reasons is because the woman is almost destitute, living week to week because she has been completely disempowered financially, which makes it such a massive feat for her to step out onto her own. That's why a lot of women who actually have the courage or leave out of necessity because their safety is at such risk that they can't stay, that they end up homeless. It's just, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And I could have been, I could have been, I was one step away from homelessness with my three young children, but I managed to get us into a a little rental, a little private rental. And, and we existed there for about seven years. He would keep trying to wear me down and manipulate me. And things got life-threatening in the end. When I said to him, I said, no more, I'm never, ever, ever going to be in a relationship with you again but you can still be a father to your children and he said to me no us no kids and I thought at the time that when he said that that it was just a dummy spit 
that he was just throwing a tantrum and nothing really would come of that. But then 10 days later, I got home to my house. I'd been at work. The kids had been at school and I opened up my front door and my house was heaving with gas. He had broken a pipe underneath. I can't say he because he was never charged for it, but a pipe underneath the stovetop had been deliberately broken and there was gas just pouring into my house for God knows how many hours during the day because I'd been out for about eight hours and I had this little stove, my heating, the only heating in that house was a little gas fluid heater and it had a glass piece on the front of it with a flame, but the glass had been broken. So the, there was a naked flame and gas, which was, it was meant for the house to explode. So it was basically the intent was there for the kids and I to get home and for us to open the door and the house to explode. Some miracle, some wow. miracle. It didn't, it didn't. And we were okay. But from that point onwards, up until that point, I had, I had this belief like I, I, because I'd lost control of everything and he was just messing with every little part of my life, I had this thing in my head, like I have a right to stay in my home. I have a right to stay here and to look after my kids. I am the one giving these kids the stability. I am the one giving these kids normality. I am the one who was raising these children. I should be left alone in peace to be able to do this. So I had already put an intervention order in place to, or a restraining order in place so that he wasn't allowed to come anywhere near me and the kids. He didn't like that. And that's when things really escalated. And that's when this happened. So after this happened, I just, it was like this light bulb moment where I just went, oh my God, no matter what I think, I can't stay. I am no longer safe here and my children are no longer safe here. We cannot be here. So we went into hiding about five times and um, it didn't stop. There were other things that happened after that. And from that point on, I was just in absolute fear for our lives. And we did one, one move within the same town because I still had that lingering feeling of justice that I should be able to stay in my community. I should be able to stay in my job. My children should be able to remain in their school. For goodness sakes, these are all things that are rights, but it had gone beyond that. I couldn't stay because our safety was at risk. And so the police finally remanded him and he held without bail and we had an opportunity. He was held without bail until his hearing, which his hearing was three weeks later. So we had this window and that was it. I garage sailed and I raised enough money to pay for the first month's rent and bond for the next place, plus to cover the cost of a removal truck. And I just sold every possible item that I could to raise that money for us to transition far away 
we changed our name. My family did not know where we had moved to. We cut off from everybody. It was like we just literally left our old life behind. We had to disassociate ourselves from everyone so that he wouldn't be able to track us down. So that was a completely traumatizing time for all of us. I I just hate going back there, Dawn. I hate yeah. going back to that time. That was the lowest, never, lowest of the low point, right? The yeah, never in, a, never in a million years did I think that I would be in that situation. Never did I ever think that. And this is what happens, though, is that it gets really, really dangerous for women in abusive relationships when they take a stand and they say no more and they leave because the person who's been controlling them doesn't like the, the balance of power shifting. Yeah. So yeah. things then get very desperate and very dire and very, very scary. And at that time I reached out to every possible support I could. I, I had no support for my family. I had no support from friends because I had to cut everybody off. And so I had the support of the police. I had the support of the courts. I had the support of welfare. I had this, I had a social worker within Centrelink helping me. I had the support of the victims of crime tribunal. So I was able to tap into specialized counseling to help me with my trauma. I was linked into family violence support agency for myself and for my children. Um, my children had access to counselling support. There was only it was only my daughter who utilised that at the time, and she the counsellor that she had was an absolute angel. Um, it was done through the school, and she just played games with my daughter because my daughter was so traumatised and her life was just so far from being normal. Like she had to, can you imagine young children? She, so I had one in grade one, I had one in grade two, and then she was in grade four. So that was still very young when this happened. And, and her heart was absolutely, I mean, all of them were absolutely shattered that their father could try and do something to hurt them like that. Mm. and how how do you reconcile that as a child yeah. and then and then you're living with that fear of what if daddy comes back and tries to do that to us again how do yeah. you function in a, any kind of normal way but that you know that's what that's what i had to try and give them is to reintegrate them into normality again so I put them back straight into school I was really fortunate because I stayed with I kept them in the Catholic schooling system the whole way through because it was consistent for them they had stability through their education where they had all of this instability going on with the dysfunction of the relationship and the dysfunction with their father that that education and what was provided to them through that education became that 
stability that they needed to rebuild from. And it was really important for me, for them not to miss huge chunks of school, which they missed almost a term's worth of school in blocks here and there because we had to go into hiding at different times. So it was really important to me to get them back into their education and keep them doing normal things that other children do. But yeah, my daughter, they certainly at that age would not like adults where counselling for an adult is going and actually unpacking everything that has happened and is happening and how you're feeling about it and how it's impacting on you and how you're coping with it. And we have all this language already to talk about these issues when we're in counselling. Children don't. They're just scared. They're just scared. And they don't know what to say to an adult about that fear. And so she would just play games with my daughter. They would be like card games just to lighten things up and have some fun. It, it was relief. It was just giving her some relief. And she loved that. She loved that because mum was stressed. Mum was yeah. very stressed a lot of the time. And, and I could not hide that from my children all the time because my, my fear was real. And it was, we were, we were just all so traumatized and not knowing what was going to happen next. And I had to wait for the hearing to find out what was going to happen. Then he got sentenced to six months in jail. And then it was basically preparing myself for when he got out of jail and not knowing whether he would try and track us down again as soon as he got out. And he did. And we had to go through another relocation. So, so we went through a lot of trauma, upheaval, dysfunction, and my kids learnt way too many adult life skills during those times. They learnt resilience. They learnt adaptability. They learnt resourcefulness. (laughs) There were many useful skills that they'll take with them into adulthood, but I wouldn't wish it on them. I wouldn't what their experiences were to get, give them those skills. I would not wish it on them at all. And if there were anything that ever I could do to protect my children from that trauma, then I did it. And that's where things got to is that that's what I did. And I fought very, very hard, Dawn, to get um, with intervention orders or restraining orders. There's always terms that go with any order, the terms of the order, as in what a person can and can't do. Then there's also the length of time that the order is in place. And generally an order is put in place for only a term of 12 months, which means that a victim has to go back to the court before the term of that order is up and reapply for another order. There's this um, stress that goes with that, with is the abuser going to be there in court? Am I going to have to face them again? Am I going to be safe if I do go to court and make another application? Is the magistrate going to see my need to have this order in place? There's all these fears that go with that reapplication. My ex had to do two stints in jail because of the breaches to the intervention orders that were in place. And I was very, very fortunate 
that when I reapplied for an order after our second relocation, I had a magistrate that could see that my situation was dire and could see that it had been a long-term situation and that things were not improving for me. And that magistrate put a permanent order in place for me, which meant that I don't have to go back to court again and reapply for another application. And it means that my children and I, from that point onwards, we're able to focus on our healing, on our path to healing and focus on rebuilding ourselves and rebuilding our lives. So my kids have gone through, we've all gone through two name changes and they've been, you know, registered in different schools under these different names. So what I was going to say to you before is, can you imagine a child who's in, you know, grade one, a child who's in grade two and a child who's in grade four, going into a new school and being referred to by a different surname. So when they're doing roll call, instead of being called by their birth name, they're being called out by this make-believe make name and they've got to answer it like it's natural. Yes. It's just, you know, it was such a contrived existence for them. Yeah. So, yeah, so they've definitely um, been through been through the ringer as we as we say and it must be very hard for you all to have really made any real relationships with people throughout all those years because how do you make a relationship with people when you're not even able to use your own name it must be so hard it's like just surviving isn't it yeah and I think what happens after a time in that first instance where we actually only had seven months in the first relocation where we were before we had to go through another relocation. So that is not enough time to feel natural and normal. And your point is it's a heck of a lot to be holding on to. It's like this duplicity that you know that you've got this double life going on and you can't talk about that old life and you can't talk about the stresses that you're under and the trauma that you've been through with this new life that you're living because in your new life, you're trying to have a normal life and you're trying to form normal friendships and relationships. And so my kids, that was a massive burden for them, absolutely massive. And it was something that it was impossible for them to keep bottled up inside. And so they did share that with people, you know, with their friends that they made in their school, they let it slip. They couldn't not say anything about it. The yeah. second time we went through it, we were a bit more accustomed to this double life thing that we were needing to live. So it was, you know, the first time there was a huge amount of, learning and all the trauma and everything was still fresh, absolutely fresh for us. And we were all very, very raw, absolutely raw and damaged at that time. The second time we were a bit more accustomed to what we needed to do to stay safe. We were a bit more accustomed to what we needed to do to take on another name and we were a bit more accustomed about who we could talk to about these things and that even as much as we wanted to talk to people about them, that it wasn't always in our best interest.
interests to talk about our situation. So for the kids, they've been okay. I've been really, you know, I'm super proud of my kids because they have integrated or reintegrated into a normal life and they have gone through those hard yards of showing up in a normal surrounding like a school surrounding and forming friendships and everything with this heavy load that they're carrying around with them with what they've been through and trying to process trying to process that in their in their heads so what sort of things have they done to help with this like obviously they will have done therapy they haven't done a huge amount of therapy and so they've done a couple of things with domestic violence support agencies so they've done a couple of workshop things and and they've had access to support but they've actually opted not to go down that therapy path. My daughter has had some therapy and she's a bit on and off with it. So she's, she's currently, you know, getting some therapy again. And what I've said to the kids is, this is not something that you have to do because it should never be forced. Nobody should ever be forced into that therapy situation or that counselling situation. I really believe that when you get the results is when you open yourself up to wanting to do something. So nobody likes being pushed into doing anything. But when it comes to something where something that makes you feel incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and these kids are already feeling incredibly vulnerable. So what these kids have decided is important to them is to carry on with being a normal kid, doing yeah. what normal kids do. And so that has been part of our healing too, is we had to get through that time of recognition and there was a time where there were real concerns about our safety risks so we were in a very hyper vigilant state for first I think it was 2016 where things seemed to settle down for us so we've basically had four years of things feeling we've had this sense that I think we're going to be okay I think we can carry on with life again. And I've since repartnered and I remarried two and a half years ago. And so we've gone into a blended family, becoming a blended family. They, for the first time, have had a positive male role model in their lives and somebody who wants to put healthy boundaries around them and teach them what a healthy boundary looks like and has also been there to say, I'm here for you through thick and thin. I'm here for you. Not I'm in the door and out the door when I feel like it, which is what they experienced with their father. And so time will tell, time will tell with my children. And I've always talked to them about counselling in a really positive light and to try and take away any stigma about it and just say to them, 
you don't feel like there's anything majorly wrong with you because you go and talk to a counsellor. Talking to a counsellor is great because it just gives voice to the things that you're bottling up inside of you and maybe gives you a few tips and strategies and coping mechanisms and ways to, to deal with the things that you're working through. So it's there for you. Let me know if you ever want to get that support and I'll help you to tap into it. So that's what I've done. My daughter's come and gone with it a bit. So she's done a bit of counselling work and my boys to this point haven't wanted to engage in, in active therapy or counselling sessions. To look at them and to meet them, you would think that they're very normal, well-adjusted kids. They're lovely, lovely kids. Oh, that, that's a big journey for them, isn't it? But like you say, sometimes the counselling might be useful later on, but right yeah. now maybe maybe all they want to do is just live a normal life and have fun and put, put that stuff behind them. It's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? But I'm so happy that you're now in this lovely blended family and that they have this this great new role model in their life do they have anything to do with that father anymore is he no no when i got when i got that that permanent intervention order in place that basically says that forever he cannot come into contact with us so if he wanted to reconnect with the children he would need to go through the court and make applications for that to happen at the moment it's not possible and I'm very very grateful that that is the way it is because in my mind this is giving them the space to heal from what he did to them and as a mother I felt very strongly that it was my job to put that blanket of protection around them and over them because they'd been through enough. And I didn't want to take any more risks with them and with their safety, with their their peace of mind. Their peace of mind is priceless. I fought very hard for that peace of mind because that's what I believe my children deserve. After everything that you guys have gone through, I feel like they're very lucky that they've got you as their mum because sometimes you have two parents that are not really able to give anything and you Mm. have actually given them so much and you spoke about your communication with them and always leaving the door open and how important that is and what else out of all of this do you think you've taken that's important that we give to our kids? I believe it's important that we let our kids know that we love them. Just my kids, the age that they're at at the moment, you know, the teenage years and every day there's probably something that makes me exasperated. <laughs> with something pretty inconsequential that I'm asking them to do and I don't get the answer that I think I should be getting. (laughs) And I could just get very resentful towards them for those sorts of things. And there are times that I do. I can't say 100% of the time that I keep that loving them at the forefront of my mind. There are times where I think, oh, I'm just in my wits end, like, come on, guys, you know. Yeah. Um, but I had a conversation with somebody 
yesterday, uh, somebody who reminded me of just why it's so important to tell your kids that you love them. And she lost one of her children at the age of 19 with our loved ones. We don't know how long we've gone, any of us. We don't know what's around the next corner. So that uncertainty should just be a reminder to us of how important it is that we reassure each other of that love that we have for each other on a daily basis, that we make sure that we let each other know how valuable we are to each other and how precious we are. Yeah, and we can never have too much love, can we? (laughs) We can never... We can never drown somebody in too much love. So I love that advice. I think that's such an important thing that we need to remember because we do all get carried away in the moment and the, mm-hmm. the, the boring things of life and we, we can forget. So it's a really good reminder. So you have a mentoring and coaching business called Sandy J and you also have a podcast. So please tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So what happened is I did life mentor training some years ago and I didn't put that into use at the time because of all the instability in my life. And last year I started writing a book. I'd had a lot of encouragement from a lot of different people saying, you must write a book. You must write a book about your experience, about what you've gone through and to help other women who are going through similar things. So I spent the good part of six months stealing time to write this book and got to a stage where I'd almost completed it and went, right, now I've got to find a publisher. And then it was like looking at this big mountain in front of me and realising that that's a huge mountain I've got to climb to try and find a publisher. Maybe I need to open my mind to some other possibilities. And I went through this five-day challenge earlier in the year. I think 2020 has been the year to pivot for a lot of people in what they're doing. And I, I knew that this year was the year that I was going to be reaching out and helping other women like me. And when COVID hit and the world started to get turned upside down and I could see the rates of domestic abuse escalating, I thought, I've got to get off my bum and I have to do something. I can't just sit here in the comfort and security of my newfound happiness with my life that I fought really hard to rebuild and I need to help other women. I need to reach out to them and let them know that they're not alone in what they're going through and they don't have to suffer in silence. There is help out there for them. There are lots of different supports out there for them. I need to talk to them and let them know, don't feel shame and embarrassment about what you're going through. One in three women, one in three, that means almost every second woman that you're talking to, every third woman you're talking to has been through some form of abuse. Don't think you're the only one going through it just because you're going through it. I know what it's like to feel isolated and alone and scared and confused and not know where to turn. It just dawned on me that I love speaking. Why not start a podcast? 
I love communicating with people. I love having conversations. So I did. So the, the podcast is called Tiara's Tears and Triumphs, and it is designed to be a safe space for women to be supported, encouraged, inspired, to get information that could help them, to hear stories from other people to, who share about their experience, to let them know that they are not alone in what they're going through and that these other women that I talk to have come out the other side and they have rebuilt a life for themselves. And we do, we're like Phoenix rising from the ashes. We have to reinvent ourselves. We have to recreate ourselves. We have to heal. There's so many things that go into this, but women are strong, they're courageous and there is a way forward. And so I'm just, I just wanted to put a little bit of a light out there and shine a bit of a light and say there's some hope here. Please don't feel as though there is no hope for your situation. Please don't feel as though there is no way out. Please don't feel as though there is no way forward because you can work through this. So now I work through this with women and I help them with things like developing a freedom mindset because our mindset gets so affected by all these fears that we have where we feel we, there's this fear of scarcity, this fear of instability, this fear of lack of security. There's just so many fears that destabilize us and can keep us stuck in our situation and keep us from experiencing freedom and letting go and not carrying so much of the baggage around with us, letting go as we heal, as we gain understanding, as we become stronger and more empowered. And ultimately it's to regain control and step back into having control over your life and over your choices. Yes. So I work on a couple of different things with women with my, my coaching program. They can find me at sandyj.com.au or they can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook under Sandy Johnston and you can tune in anytime on most of the podcast app for the Tiara's Tears and Triumphs podcast. I'd love to help anyone who needs some support in rebuilding and stepping back into, into your power. Oh, thank you so much, Sandy. Your story is a really hard one to hear. I could just feel all of that angst and despair, I think, when your life spirals like that and you're living this, this double life, really. You've gotten through so much and you've you brought your children through that and you've been so strong and amazing and uh, I'm honoured that you would share your story with us today. So thank you so much for that. You're very welcome, Dawn, and I've loved having this conversation with you. I hope that it inspires and I hope that it can help somebody else who's listening and I really want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm very grateful. Sandy's was an extremely difficult story to hear. Just the deep Deep sense of isolation of a family on the run you know like with a seven-year-old needing to turn up to a new school and answer to a different name to the one that she knows is hers I can't even begin to understand the confusion the sense of life being out of control 
when your own father is sabotaging your life. And just that feeling that Sandy had of loving this man so much, wanting so desperately to help him and finding herself in this overwhelming cycle that became completely out of her control. Here are the takeaways. Number one, fear of not being good enough or being less than as kids can lead us on a path devoid of self-acceptance or self-love. Number two, when life gets the better of us, we can end up wearing an armor to protect ourselves from getting hurt, which impacts our relationship with self and others. Number three, Victims of domestic abuse are often isolated, alone, scared, confused, and don't know where to turn, but there are ways forward. Number four, financial abuse is a huge part of being in an abusive relationship. It can take a woman 12 attempts before they can leave an abusive relationship because they often have no access to money, live week by week, and can end up homeless. Number five, when we tell our kids that the door is open and I'm happy to talk about anything, we are working towards a collaborative, guiding and healthy relationship with our kids. Number six, let your kids know you love them and how valuable and precious they are on a daily basis. Number seven, talk to your kids about sex and sexuality openly and discuss whatever they are comfortable with. Number eight, having a positive male role model in our lives, showing up with healthy boundaries, and I'm always there for you, is super important. And number nine, with freedom comes responsibility. Give freedom and trust as kids earn it with their behavior. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way? by hearing this episode, please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week.